0: Hello and welcome to The Diff, a new podcast from the makers of Third Sector, the leading title for the charity world. I'm your host Rihanna Dillon and as the classic Third Sector strapline goes, this is a place where we champion the people who make a difference and we do it by telling your stories. I talk to people who work for charities and not-for-profits, who share anecdotes, frank discussion, and ideas for building a better world. And through conversations that challenge and inspire in equal measure, we explore how we can all make the difference. This month our theme is the prevention of knife crime so over the next few days we'll be meeting just some of the people and the organisations that work in this field and today we'll delve into the background and root causes of this endemic problem in the UK. Between 2013 and 2022 there's been a 75% increase in knife crime in England and Wales, a truly shocking statistic. Police recorded more than 50,000 offences involving a knife or a sharp instrument between April 2020 and March 2023. And in the 12 months since March 2022, 19 young people aged under 25 were murdered with a knife or sharp object. 13 of those had not yet reached their 16th birthdays. These are just a handful of recent knife crime statistics, but never forget that behind the numbers, are human stories with life-changing consequences. Stories like Ben Kinsella's, a 16-year-old student at Holloway School who was stabbed to death in an attack by three men in June 2008. And today I'm joined by Patrick Green, Chief Executive of the Ben Kinsella Foundation, and Nathaniel Peet, founder of the Safety Box CIC, to talk about the so-called knife crime epidemic in the UK and hear about how their organisations are working to address this. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to make a difference to people affected by knife crime?
1: My journey into joining the Ben Kinsella Trust starts shortly after Ben's murder when I met his sister Brooke, who was campaigning uh, avidly to stop knife crime. Um, And um, I was working for Victim Support at the time and Brooke was doing some media work for Victim Support and we got talking and... Like everybody at that time, I, I knew Ben's story, and um, you know, was passing on my sympathies to Brooke, and she started talking to me about, you know, what she wanted to do. Uh, and particularly with the young people she was working with at the time and, and the vision they had about trying to make a difference as a, as a new charity. And um, I was blown away by what I heard. Um, Brooke is an incredible uh, human being and uh, you know, um, has, has, a, has an energy that I've never met with anybody else and let's nothing stand in her way. The approach she was taking, which was using the lived experiences of people directly affected by knife crime and creating an, an exhibition, an experience for young people to truly understand what knife crime is, which is the... Heartache, misery, and life of suffering that is left for those who, you know, who fall uh, victims to knife crime, and she was doing it in a way that I'd never heard before, and, and yeah, I, I was in. Um, and a few years later, I, I became CEO, and um, yeah, it's a passion that drives me on. Mm-hmm. Even though,
0: and Nathaniel, what about you?
2: Yeah, for me, um, it's the it's really the cognizant reality of growing up in the inner city community. Uh, so I grew up area of North London known as Tottenham, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where, you know, we had the London riots. Um, I went to a school that was, um, really had a lot of racial tension at the time because of the murder of uh, Joy Gardner, which created a lot of tension between the police and, uh, and the black community. Consequent to the issues of discrimination in my school, despite being, you know, very apt with mathematics. Being very good with English, coming from a a private school primary education, going into a state school, the perception of the black young person in the classroom by my teacher, unfortunately, didn't allow me to push and pursue at the level that I could have. And so the talent which I had was wasted Mm -hmm. effectively in bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Consequent to that, I didn't do well at school uh, and I myself got caught up in low levels of criminality as a young person. Experiencing friends that got arrested for drugs, as well as experiencing and seeing knife incidents happening when I was younger, really helped me to think about my life differently. In particular, when a young person was murdered in North London, uh, that was linked to the conflict between Hatney and Tottenham at the time. I hustled my way into college, <laughs> literally begged my way in right. um, off of my friend's enrollment letter. And I got onto my A-levels because someone actually believed in me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the head of the physics department because I got rejected. uh, So I didn't have enough GCSEs, but they rejected me effectively three times. But then she saw me come back three times and then she said, I've seen you come back three times. (laughs) And so understanding that somebody could connect with you if they believe in you. Once I finished university, I could still see the problems of knife crime. I could still see the issues that, were there when I was growing up. The lack of um, equality Mm. and equity, in fact, I'm going to say equity, the word equity, because it's different from equality. And these issues still existed. And so as a result of that, I founded The Safety Box uh, after um, a close friend lost his son, Kion Prince, um, in 2006. And um, the whole idea and the concept of The Safety Box was designed um, to keep young people safe. So everything inside the box, is about keeping young people safe. And so because of the lived experience um, that I've had, that has been one of the key motivators um, to pushing against this epidemic of knife crime that exists in the United Kingdom. And even youth violence, because youth violence is not pinned to a particular race or color or group of people. Uh, Youth violence is actually a global problem.
0: So you used the word epidemic there to do with knife crime, which I think is really interesting. We've, we it's a it's an umbrella term which feels quite, you know, at a distance from both of your quite personal stories. How useful is that term, the knife crime epidemic?
1: I think it's helpful in one way, unhelpful in another. It's, it's helpful in terms of e- explaining how violence grows and escalates mm-hmm. and mutates and takes shape. So, and it, it also links to the public health approach, which is an which is approach which um, you know, is often heralded you know, in Scotland as the reason that they have done so well tackling uh, violence. So, yeah, it, it shows in the same way that viruses mutate and spread and grow really quickly, violence and knife crime does exactly the same. Mm-hmm. When knife crime figures go up, really hard to get them down again where i have some contention with the word epidemic is that in medical sense an an epidemic happens and then there's containment we've seen that in you know if we think about what happened in covid it's contained and it's brought under control and then measures are put in place to reduce it knife crime has been present for two decades probably more there's been no containment knife crime is is not an epidemic it's part of this country and that's wrong Mm. so um it's unhelpful because it, it makes people think it's this is just a short-term thing that's suddenly blown up today and we need to get on top of it. It's not. It's systemic and it's intergenerational. And that's something we've got to tackle.
0: And what do you see as some of the primary causes of this spread of knife crime? Because there are so many kind of varied reasons. How do you go about tackling mm. it if it's so wide?
2: There is a number of different causal factors uh, that research will heavily back Poverty being one of the key drivers of it, social exclusion, compounded trauma, issues of neurodiverse conditions that have not been managed properly, combined with mental health issues. There's research that Queen Mary University did, uh, in fact, with gang members, and they found a large proportion of those gang members had some mental health issue. Mm -hmm. Shock trauma, which is from injury, there are issues with uh, lack of investment um, anytime you have lack of investment in an the area, mm-hmm. there's high crime. I mean, look at Croydon, for example. Mm-hmm. There's corruption there. There was issues with money not going to youth provisions. You know, Youth, youth Offending Service, the Youth Justice I Remember the, the head of service saying, we want your program, but we can't afford it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, the lack of opportunities that, that young people face, it, it has a consequential impact. Because then the very belief of that young person then is stripped away. You see, the problem with knife crime is not a knife problem. It's not even a gun problem. It's a mind problem. And the thing is, once we can actually start to think about fixing mindsets, societies, cultures, and it's a really valuable comment there in that it is a systemic cultural problem. The reason why I use the word epidemic is because we were the first England-based organization to bring the public health model approach into a British prison. So we, we implemented that in Cook & Wood. Uh, prison in in 2012 2013 we reduced the violence by 95 percent in one year that's group violence executing an effective public health model approach that's when everyone understands because it takes a cultural shift in order to get containment the problem that we've got is leaders often move police often move Mm -hmm. social services um, are strained Um, There's not enough mental health support. They're not talking to each other. There's no information sharing. And that's how the public health model works properly. And that's why Glasgow managed to achieve such great levels of violence reduction because of all of the bodies understanding the same vision. Now, if you're thinking about a marriage, if you've got two people that are married, if they're not aligned in the same vision, then there's probably going to be separation at some point. In the same way, we're talking about this systemic embedded problem, which is compounded through the societal issues of COVID-19 and uh, Black Lives Matters and all the other various different things that we've been hit with over the last five to 10 years, Mm. it will take a huge effort of cultural shift to have an impact on the causal factors which is really underpinned by this thing known as poverty, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, the mental health, all the things which I've mentioned before. There really has to be a shift from a very senior level and looking at how even corporates can contribute to the the investments into some of the public sector in order for um, us to support young people.
0: Now, you mentioned Croydon. So we are recording this day after the Croydon stabbing of a 15-year-old girl. And I know that both of you have been incredibly busy with keeping up with the demand, people wanting to talk to you, as voices at the forefront of teaching about knife crime. So what have you noticed about misconceptions in the media or in the public opinion about knife crime during this particular wave of interest?
1: Yeah, and it's not just this particular wave. I thought, um, Daniel just spoke brilliantly about what knife crime is. You start undoing the thread, and it takes you into places you never expected to go. What we see often when these tragic and terrible incidents happen is we get knee-jerk reactions and we get short-term solutions. Mm -hmm. Knife crime is often portrayed as a really simple solution. You put more police on the streets, you send people away for longer in, into prison, and that's how you tackle it. And the logic being you create a deterrent and that'll stop people um, you know, committing knife crime. And there's a lo- certain logic to that. The reality is, test that logic over decades and it's not delivering. In fact, the only thing that's made a difference to knife crime in the last decade is COVID. When we locked people down, knife crime levels dropped. They didn't disappear. Mm-hmm. They just got lower. No... Government has achieved that in the last ten years. No government administration. We've got to recognise knife crime for what it is. What Nathaniel just explained—the complexity of it. When we start to understand that, and that's that mind shift, I think you're talking about, then we have a chance of tackling this issue. And I think you know we talk about raising awareness of knife crime. It isn't raising awareness of knife crime is terrible. We all know it's terrible. It's raising awareness of how you prevent knife crime, and it is preventable. And that's the message that we've got to get across. This is a complex social issue, and we've got to tackle it as such.
0: So how do you approach it with the Ben Kinsella trust? What do you do when you go into schools or communities? What's the kind of work that you might be doing?
1: Yeah, it's, it's the, the how we do it, not the what we do is what's unique about the Bank of Trust. Um, you come to us, we don't go to you. Uh, we have a, we've created an exhibition, three exhibitions, in fact, uh, two in London, one in Nottingham, yeah. which are a series of interconnecting rooms, which tell the real stories of real people who are directly affected by knife crime. Mm. And it's an immersive experience. So we don't tell you what to do and what not to do or what to think and what not to think. This is, you know, this is what young people told us, that how they wanted to learn. But you understand through empathy, through following people's stories who are just like you about mm. what happened, both as an offender and a victim, both sides of the coin, you start to understand how destructive knife crime is, how many lives it's damaged, and also the choice that you have in this and also who you can reach out to for support. There isn't one unique workshop. It's a combination of contact with young people in in different ways. The way we work changes young people's attitudes and behaviour. That's what a, you know. That's that's what we're told. But it's it's reinforced then when they get back to school. It's reinforced when when they meet other people. It's reinforced when they go to other workshops. This is a multi-layered approach and a multi-contact approach with young people. You do that right, and you do that consistently young people like us all make good decisions but they need to be supported through the process
0: mm-hmm. and it obviously seems to come so primarily from the education system so how do you get involved with that side in the safety box
2: yes yeah, so, i mean we work right the way across the sector so we work in schools uh, people referral units uh, probation um yois uh, which is uh, youth offending institutions mm-hmm. and also prisons what we do particularly around county lines in particular, around the country. Could uh, you
0: just explain what county, county lines, lines are? County
2: lines is the exploitation of minors um, in drug trafficking or otherwise uh, what we call drillers who are sent for violence. For your listeners, a trapper is somebody that is selling drugs. A driller is someone that supports the selling of the drugs with violence. Most of the graduates that we have from our prison programs um, as credible messengers. So a lot of them are uh, violence interrupters effectively, um, and able to do wraparound support around Irish young people. Mm-hmm. So when we're taking them off a county line, it would involve working with the police and also with the social services. But we have to do a lot of work in actually getting them away from the county line first mm-hmm. in order to do that. That's why we need the placements with the social services to move them into a particular area, maybe four or five hours away. So at that level, that's very high risk. In the early interventions, it's um, a number of school workshops mm-hmm. that we deliver both for primary education and um, prevention um, against grooming uh, because gang members groom you know, as young as age eight. And so we teach them the methods of how they get caught <laughs> for role play and various other things. And yeah. like we have high level cognitive behavior therapy. Um, we have high level life coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the credible you know, messages who are, we call lived experience have got a level seven life coaching qualification post mm-hmm. their employment with us. Um, in addition to that, they are trained in CBT to understand the layers of trauma that's put into the limbic system of the brain. Oftentimes when you get a young person and you're you're talking to them a certain way, they might start railing up and they might start doing stuff and that trauma then surfaces in feelings and emotions and action. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of science Mm -hmm. mixed with evidenced best practice from other organizations in, in in the United States and also in the Caribbean that we use as a combined way to do group work interventions, one-to-one interventions, both within a prison context, a YOO context, a safeguarding perspective for primary level, um, and also intervention method for high-risk young people on county lines. Um, And the data um, supports all the work which we do in that. We're able to effectively get them into employment or education post our interventions. So evaluation is a key thing for us. And so we're currently being evaluated by Birmingham University and we've had studies by Kingston, um, Sheffield Hallam University and uh, University of Illinois Chicago and and other universities that have helped Mm -hmm. us to build on the research. So we always feed back in to interventions so that we can develop and um, improve.
0: Right. And when you kind of have these clear ideas of what you want to do, how you want to help, you have people telling, you have actual children telling you what they need how they mm-hmm. learn yeah, yeah. so what are the major challenges that you come up against day to day
1: clearly the, the major challenges you know resources uh, awareness uh, around the public health approach uh, awareness that you know this works uh, I, I think one of the, the biggest challenges i've seen more recently is apathy mm. um mm. you know um the, the, this has been going on so long um recently i did some communications around uh, the Home Secretary's announcement that they were now looking to ban machetes and zombie knives. And I was really struck when I, when I uh, did interviews how the reporters were just saying, well, this isn't going to make any difference. Nothing any Home Secretary has, has said before has made any difference. Right. And you just begin to think that out there people have given up. Mm. But the, the the idea that, you know, oh, it's, it's night going there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way things are.
0: When you say people, you mean government or... Go-
1: government, um, you know, or... yeah, yeah. Um, and people I meet, people, you know, taxi drivers, any, you know, right. p- p- people who just open a conversation yeah. with you. As soon as you say what you do, they'll say, oh, well, you know, it's, you know, what are you going to do? It's, you're never going to change that. You can change it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th- there is that level of apathy, and it is reinforced by the fact we've had announcement after announcement after announcement of things that don't work, were never going to work, or if they did work, were going to make such a small difference that they really weren't weren't going to shift the paradigm at all. We've, We've got to get real about this. It is about doing everything that Daniel said earlier on. And most importantly, it may mean that politicians have to work together rather than build political capital out of this. No one party is going to solve this. This will only work if something is put in place that lasts longer than a term of office. Um, and it is, it is set in stone for a generation and nobody can touch it. We start to get those principles right and we've got a chance to turn mm. this around.
0: I mean, do you have to be sort of optimist in your job, Nathaniel? Because it, as you say, apathy is something which affects all of us and even to the point of hopelessness. Mm.
2: Parents all the time um, give up on their kids. I like right. uh, We, especially when they're on county lines. Um, the parents are completely given up mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oftentimes the council is the legal parent now because of the safeguarding issues not because the parents a bad parent, it's just that um, the parent doesn't have the ability to safeguard let's say the other children because of them carrying a knife into the house mm-hmm. and so the parent cannot actually then safeguard the other children as a result of that so the parent now is the is the council or local authority so at that time there is huge apathy with parents sometimes they completely give up on their kids we give them hope we show them examples, like yep. some of our guys that committed attempts of at murder, some of them have uh, you know, high-level gang members mm-hmm. that have turned their life around. So the credible messengers yeah. um, that we use that have shown that if you get the right type of person helping you with the incubation and the support framework around mm-hmm. you, you have the ability to excel, you have the ability. And that belief in itself is inspirational then, for us to maintain the motivation. You mentioned challenges and I must say this, as a black person in this space um, for 17 years, mm-hmm. it has been very challenging for me and also colleagues like that look like me mm-hmm. and also female colleagues as well that yeah. look like me because we operate oftentimes um, on a micro level. Some of us managed to get up a little bit higher than that. However, you see these grassroots organizations are, have really got an understanding of how to deal with this issue. However, they lack the capacity support. They lack the elevation. They lack the conversations that many of these policy writers are pulling information from. And that piece also needs to be disrupted because you need the right type of people to do the work with the right type of communities. Mm. And that's important. You need people that understand. And there's lots of data that supports this lived experience, you know, that that supports everything I'm saying. It's going to take different people becoming Mental health practitioners for young people termed as CAMS, CAMS officers, that are not necessarily academic, but those people who really understand the journey of that young person they're they're working with.
0: Because they might have been through something similar. Because they
2: might have been through something similar, or even they have a cultural understanding Mm. of of that. And therefore, it it allows the young person to want to engage them Mm. because a lot of these youth don't want to. One of the areas that we do with young people that carry weapons, we teach them how to protect themselves against knives. Because mm-hmm. you're working with a young person and say, yo, you know what, my, my G, I ain't got that like, fam. Like, you know what, the man's coming to me and it's straight with a shank, in it? Like, how am I going to protect myself on the estate? Like, the man's coming to me with a shank. What are you telling me? Like, put down a knife? So we say, okay, we're going to take the knife out of your hand. We're going to show you how to protect yourself against a knife. Right. That's a real strategy. Yeah. Um, And it's been real. With the young people, listening is very important. And that's why the, the, the bank Kinsella has got such a fantastic strategy around listening, because if you don't listen, then you're not going to know what to do. Mm-hmm. And um, because as organizations, we both listen.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that's why what we do works in a sense. Yeah. Um, and um, the challenges will always be present. But I've got to give a big shout out to the independent newspaper today because they said they're going to actually uh, highlight Eight black organisations to give us more profile because oh, wow. we don't get it yeah, normally. That's so that's, i got to give a shout out to the independent newspaper. There. So next year, 24, we're going to be highlighted with free advertising. And that is just really great because they have seen and recognised that there's organisations that do really good work, mm-hmm. but perhaps are not getting the attention. Yeah. Um, and and that's really fantastic. In fact, this podcast in itself is also really good that you guys are illustrating This issue, because I think the challenge is to change mindsets Mm. and uh, by creating um, social content um, conversations, it helps to give people hope
0: Mm -hmm.
2: um, in in how we can address these issues of knife crime.
0: I wanted to ask you both actually about sort of gender and about do you have gender specific programs because I think people might build up an idea of who is a victim who is a perpetrator yeah. what they might look like often male but actually as we've seen victims can be female and perpetrators can be female so yes. how do you I guess you speak to them in very different ways because they might yeah. have very So an, an all-girls
1: school will have a very different experience of our exhibition and workshop than maybe an all-boys school yeah. uh, you know it'll be female-led female facilitation what we've seen today in in, in Croydon you know illustrates that you know knife crime affects young women just as it does young men um and it it affects them differently there there are different motivations they are drawn into 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 violence and gangs in different ways you know they're often used to smuggle you know knives or drugs uh, coercion and control is a, is often a big part of it um and helping young women just as we do with young men opening their eyes to, to what can be happening around them and also giving them the tools to deal with that, really, really important. You know, we talked about the culture, very important. Gender is very important. All those factors are very important and, you know, um, all have to be taken together. Life crime can happen to anybody. You know, you only have to look at the list of victims and perpetrators. It can happen to anybody. And it's important that, you know, we recognise that in the work that we do.
0: Mm. What about you, Nathaniel? Because I know that you have very specifically tailored programs Mm -hmm. for men and women.
2: Yeah, so um, last three years, 60% of the young people we've worked with have been girls and 40% have been boys. Mm. Um, And that's been very specific because um, the influence of girls in violence is is very strong, even down to sort of information sharing with uh, gang members um, of where a young person may be. And also, you've got girls that choose and not exploited, so they choose to actually be in a gang or choose to be violent, as opposed to be, you know, the standard sort of coercion and control or or the exploitation.
0: Is it a different kind of exploitation? Because presumably nobody chooses that life. No, if-
2: no, it's just the fact that they've grown up with a drug dealer. Mum and dad have used. Uh, Mum and dad have sold. Uh, Is what they've grown up with. One of our partners, Sherry Johnson Smith, uh, grew up in one of the biggest drug families in in Peckham, um, and her female gang that she had linked directly into this because they chose it. And so there's also those types of young people with the girls, and because we're working with very high risk, mm-hmm. um we see that. But we're also working with the lower level, which are more, let's say, vulnerable to. Exploitation. Uh, so there is a very specific criteria that we, we look at. We also look to go for 80% um, black and Asian mm-hmm. and then other other ethnic ethnic groups and also white British. And that's measured again based upon if they're eligible for free school meals, their level of disadvantage, I guess, uh, whether the household income is less than £21,000 a year, this type of whether in care, of care. There's a lot of different factors that um, we look at in terms of if we're funded, uh, which we are, uh, like we're in London, so London Violence Reduction Unit is one of our funders, Mm -hmm. um, of how we would then locate the young people and get the referrals to work with those youth. So it's very specific, but um, we've made a concerted effort to make sure that we have a high percentage of girls that we work with as opposed to boys.
0: Finally, just to wrap up, Patrick, I wanted to ask you, First of all, how you sort of, you stay motivated yourself, but also how you can support other organisations. You know, what tips do you have for those who are trying to deal themselves with the consequences of knife crime, considering that the Ben Kinsella Trust does it so successfully?
1: I'm motivated by the young people we work with. Um, On on, on the worst days that I've had, when when even I've come back thinking, this isn't working. Um, You know, I I look around, you know, today might be an example. I, Mm. I, I, I walk in I see a workshop going on. The determination of the young people we work with to change and not to get caught up in this yeah. drives you on. And you just realise it isn't that it isn't working. It is It is just that we're not doing enough of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the motivation that, that keeps going. Also working for, for family who've lost a son and brother to this. They won't rest until knife crime stopped. And, yeah, I'm, I'm on that journey with them. For other organisations, and we tend to be very small, life crime organisations tend to be very small. We are very grassroots. We probably know the environment we're working in extraordinarily well. We probably don't get the recognition that we deserve for the work we do. If you're one of those organisations, you're listening to this, you know, I believe in you. You know, it's it's important to realise where your strengths are and to keep fighting and and, and reach out to other organisations. Together, we're, we're doing incredible work. I just mm-hmm. wish the, we, could, we got the recognition and obviously the funding and you know, because we can have conversations with the young people in the localities that we live and work in that nobody else can have and we can change things and we do change things so yeah uh, to anybody listening who's doing this work thank you and keep going.
0: Thank you and Nathaniel what can communities do if knife crime is particularly prevalent in their areas and they want to do something but it feels like they're fighting a losing battle how can they stay motivated in the same way?
2: I'd say uh, reach out to organisations, NGOs, charities, local organisations, it's as easy as Googling, <laughs> you know, uh, knife crime right. in Twickenham or uh, Richmond or wherever that's right. where we are at the moment, or, you know, knife crime in Kensington, Chelsea, or wherever it may be, Maida avel mm-hmm. Mozart, estate in you know, Kilburn or wherever it might be, and then connecting to them for advice and support. Mm-hmm. I would say also that it's important that communities even touch base with even the police, the local police, the officers, which are the local officers. And it's important they build a relationship because the police are actually seeking that at the moment. And I would say there is a lot of work which is happening within the borough command units or what the the police term is BCUs, in particular, boroughs to try to help the system, (laughs) not in a reactive way. in a preventative way Mm -hmm. and um, if they can't trust their community then they're probably going to police a bit harder Mm -hmm. so um, it's understanding how they can connect into the independent advisory boards for the police um, so that they can have their voice heard it's important that they get into positions of um, local leadership through councils because then they'll have the voice of influence it's not about affluence it's about influence Mm. in this space and the community can have a great influence if they work together i'm talking about you know understanding you know connecting with the pastors and the reverence or the imans and that's the the faith-based community or 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 other communities that come together female communities gender communities you know um it's being able to communicate with each other and um, through the whispers that happen within the community, we'll be able to get justice mm-hmm. for the victims of knife crime. There has to be some work that is put in from the community to work together mm. and to work with the authorities and uh, the agencies, the public services. And so that is sort of my advice. And, and even just to touch on the other point about organized grassroots organizations, try to find other organizations you can partner with to go for bigger bids. So if your turnover is only 100 grand a year, you're going to go to one that's got a million pounds or maybe 500,000 and connect with them and see if you can get a partnership bid going in. And that will help to elevate you. That's another one just for organisations that are working within communities that are at grassroots.
0: Thank you so much, Nathaniel and Patrick, for giving up your time, especially on such a busy day. Today, we've heard just a bit about the complexities surrounding the knife crime epidemic from two organisations that work to raise awareness of these issues. In our next episode, we're going to be meeting an organisation that teaches young people how to become part of the solution to the crisis by giving them all the practical skills they need to save a life. Don't miss it. I'm Rihanna Dillon, and this has been The Diff. We hope that you're leaving us with some food for thought. And if you liked what you heard, then please share these episodes with your friends, your colleagues, your family, anyone else who might like a listen. You know, the person that you're sitting next to on the bus. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line at thirdsector@haymarket.com, And if you know anyone working in the charity sector who has a great story to tell, we want to know about them too. The creators of The Diff are Till Owen, Jude Iguakun. Inga Marsden, Nav Pal and Babajide Osikoya. It was edited by Emily Burt. And last but not least, thank you to the team at Third Sector for their support.